Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, we're, we're, we're chugging right along one, one of these one week after the other. None of, the, none of those three, four-week breaks like Although before, there is a, no, except there's a break coming. We're not doing one next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you don't have to hang a lantern on everything. Uh, yeah. like. <laughs> uh, which means this is your last chance for two weeks to hear about our great sponsor. That's right. <laughs> All right. You're getting pretty good at that. Uh, okay, yeah, this uh, movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. Uh, now, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. To check out these and other articles, uh, just go to the page for this week's Movie Journal episode and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. Done. All right. Uh, thank, thank you, you. Miniflix. Thank you to Miniflix. Uh, let's get started on some movies that we watched. All right. I watched the movie. Uh, it's coming out here in the States at the end of the month. Uh, it's directed by a guy named, oh, let's say his name is Joe Penna. It stars Mad Mickelson, Mads Mickelson. Is that his name? Uh, Mads? No, uh, Joe Penna. Joe Penna. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, it sounded like you were going to come up with a name for him no, his and then just Joe arrive Penna. at his name. Okay, got uh, it. The movie starts Mads Mickelson and Maria Thelma Smeradoter and end of list. Um, okay. There is actually one other, uh, there are a couple other humans glimpsed in the movie, but those are the only two who have any real presence in the movie. The movie's called Arctic. Um, oh, I just saw uh, I just saw like a poster for it. It looked fascinating. It is. Uh, I, I feel like I mean that uh, like survival thrillers, like lone survival thrillers, are yeah. kind of um, uh, uh, becoming more and more a genre unto. That's an themselves. episode waiting to happen. Yeah, I think. Yeah, um, and again, I, c- I couldn't help but c- so this is a movie about. Uh, it takes place in the Arctic. Not just a clever name. Um, Mads Mikkelsen uh, has um, crashed his plane. We don't, uh, unlike other sort of survival stories, we don't see we don't see the event when we mm-hmm. when we join him. He has already crashed and already been living alone in the Arctic um, for we don't know how long. Okay, so long enough that there were other people that have that were with him. We don't know if they survived for a while, if they died in the crash, we know they're gone. We know that we see how he spends his day, how he spends his day cranking the, um, distress signal, you know, uh, and, um, (coughs) making a giant SOS in the snow, but also how he keeps himself busy and keeps himself fed uh, in the Arctic. It's like very much a process type movie. Um, and then, um, just when we think, he's about to be saved. It, there's another crash in the Arctic. Oh man. And so he goes to this helicopter crash and finds one survivor. Um, although she's, um, very badly wounded and, and he eats her. Uh, yeah, he just immediately, <laughs> eats her. um, no. And then, so then it becomes about the, 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 the two of them and him sort of trying to nurse her back to health or get them to help or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a lot of these movies, I immediately go to all is lost, which sure. on the one hand feels like, it, it it feels like the sort of um, not the pinnacle in terms of quality of the genre, but in terms of like uh, visibility, mm-hmm. I point to all is lost. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, that's the one that was like, it had some award nominations, right? Did it, uh, uh, not Oscars, but like no, it was a big, yeah, it was, it was a big award. contender for actor and, and other things. Yeah. It has a Redford in it. It's like the movie people like, Oh, okay, I remember that. But, um, I talked about this a little bit uh, at AFI Fest when I saw a German film that's somewhat in this genre before it takes a left turn about halfway through called Sticks, S-T-Y-X, um, that I, every time I see one of these movies in this genre, I like it more than All Is Lost. And I liked All Is Lost. Yeah. But I can't help but feel <clears throat> that... You saw All Is Lost, right? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, you didn't? I, it seems like it's up your alley. I, um, I wanted to see it, and it's just one of those that, like the year went by without my seeing it and then it goes into a black forever. hole. Yeah, I know that. Maybe I'll see it in like 10 years. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. That, that, that definitely happens. Um, 
uh, yeah, we had someone email us or comment on the Facebook today uh, talking about the mo- the films of Oz Perkins, um, the black coach daughter in oh, yeah. I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And I was like, yeah, I missed those. And I was like, I guess I should watch them. But I've, it is mostly like the thing. It's like, ah, I missed them. They're, they're gone. <laughs> it is. And, I, and honestly, if it weren't for, excuse me, if it weren't for this podcast, I don't know if I'd have that up, that attitude. There isn't, there is not that we are a week to week, uh, review show or anything like that, but I do think that there's a tendency in me that when the year flips, that's because we, we put a lot of emphasis on year end wrap up, which we're in the middle of now. Yeah. Um, there are posts, there are top 10 lists on the website. There's Mm -hmm. more stuff, uh, coming. It is the BP nominations have been announced. Yeah. Um, in terms of, website behind the curtains in terms of website traffic the first couple months of the year are always oh, yes. the hugest for us yeah um because we do so much in the year stuff so yeah we have sort of painted ourselves in this corner where it's like gotta see it before we do our top 10 episode yeah. and then it goes into a black hole forever but not forever <laughs> and i think there's the fact that by the time we're done spring is here uh, not yeah. exactly but not far off and you know, big tentpole movies are being released earlier and earlier and earlier. And so there's this feeling of like, okay, we're done with the the end of year stuff. And even though there's still a few outstanding things that I'm sure I would love to see, it's like, yes, but you know, Avengers Endgame is, is out now. So I guess I better go see that. Like you desire to be part of the conversation. And now I think certain conversations start earlier in the year. So there's, there's no real gap for us to like catch up on stuff after the in our end of the year coverage but anyway. um yeah i mean i use now between the end of the year and our top 10 that's when i catch up on stuff right yeah yeah um but anyway that's not the point back to the movie um so the thing that i was so you know the conceit of all is lost is that it only has one line of dialogue or one word of dialogue in the entire movie do you know that is that something you knew i think someone mentioned that what's the okay. word i mean you want to it's a spoiler yeah well here's I'll let you guess. We're giving this hint. The movie is rated PG-13. Oh, is it fuck? Yeah, it's fuck. Hey, that's um, fun. Uh, but I always felt like, even watching that, I liked the movie, but I always felt like that was a bit of a self-conscious choice. Yeah. Like, if you're alone Especially because long- it was a command. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, um... No, I don't. I don't mean the one word is a self-conscious choice. The not talking for so long is a self-conscious choice. Like I, I was talking about this with our friend Aaron, and I joked, but kind of true. It's like I can't sit in traffic for forty-five minutes without talking to myself at least a little bit. Yeah, like it seems weird to not talk to yourself, you know. Whereas in this movie, Mads Mikkelsen does talk to himself. He's looking mm. for. So he's got like a map that he rescued like, from a thing, and he's. Uh, comes across this sort of obstacle, this rock outcropping mm. that isn't on the map. And he says over and over again um, in Danish, uh, it's not on the fucking map. Yeah. It's not the, so he says, fuck, this movie's obviously rated R because he, yeah. he says fuck a lot, actually, okay. um, which I feel like I would too. It'd be pretty fucking frustrating yeah. <laughs> up there. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and then the movie takes place in the Arctic, so it's a lot of location photography. There's very little obvious CG um uh, enhancement to the movie. There's a, there's a polar bear that I think is a mix of a real polar bear and some CG in okay. certain shots. But even that it's, it's Does very, it good? very well. Yeah. Very well done. Okay. Um, uh, and yeah, it's a very simple, straightforward movie that it tends to be, uh, I mean, I feel we've been doing this podcast for almost 12 years. So there are certain things that I feel like a broken record on mm-hmm. because I, I have certain opinions on movies. Uh, and one of them is that I like movies that depict just process, just one thing do this and this and this, and it becomes like a, like a math equation, you know, or or a recipe you're following. Like it's, there's an an inherent drama in just following the one thing after the other. And this type of movie is perfect for that. Cause all he has is, (coughs) is time. So like, we're not going to just see him eating a fish. We're going to see, well, how do he catch the fish? How did he, plant the trap where do you get the bait what like everything oh man you got to watch the tom waits sequence of uh, uh buster scruggs i will i will um all right uh what did you watch all right so um <clears throat> not exactly okay i was actually going to write about this and then found that i did not have the time so i'll just say it here um 
is a weird dot to connect, but this it'll explain why I might wind up getting oddly emotional as I talk about this. So uh, shortly after my, uh, not even shortly, I guess a few years after my dad uh, passed away, I remember I met, uh, I'd gone to like an old church that we attended many years before, mm-hmm. and uh, I met a, a family friend that I had not seen since I was a kid. And he told me a story about my dad. And it wasn't even like a big groundbreaking story. It was more just like a story about an amusing thing he said once. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and it really was kind of, it was so nice. Like when someone is gone, when someone passes away, you kind of feel like, all right, the, the book has closed and I now know everything that there is to know. And when you find out a new piece of information, yeah. it's, it's very valuable and you come to really cherish it. So... Along those lines, I did watch The Other Side of the Wind. Okay. Um, and aside from The Immortal Story, which I uh, purchased with some Christmas money that I got, um, I've seen all of Orson Welles' films. And, and some of them multiple times. And you're just kind of familiar with his filmography, and it's kind of done. And, and you feel like, okay, this is finished, and I can now comb out of these films what Orson Welles thought of life and yes I've read a number of biographies as well but um and then you see The Other Side of the Wind uh, a film that is regardless of what he might have said in interviews the most personal thing he ever made I mean <laughs> like I know that he the John Huston character he says that in his mannerisms he's based on Hemingway which is probably true from a certain macho standpoint but he's a film director that can't secure money uh-huh. in this uh, made by Orson <laughs> Welles in the seventies. Come on. Um, and so, but what it's, what's wonderful about it is that there is a very specific cadence to Orson Welles films, certainly from an editing standpoint, um, whether it be a thriller or a Shakespearean film, there's just a, a tone and a, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with the word cadence. There's just a very specific cadence that at times can be frustrating. It can keep you on edge, uh, but it is at the same time exhilarating. He was always trying to make sure you were paying attention to his films. Um, and with The Other Side of the Wind, uh, you know, the, the people that they got to to finish it, they, boy... And I know that they were like 40 minutes done already, so he kind of set the tone for what the film was going to be, but they really did a great job with it. Um, it, it feels like an Orson Welles film. That was something that I was worried about going into. Is this going to feel like an imitation, like someone doing an impression, or is it actually going to feel like him? It feels 100% like him. It's a film very much unlike anything he had done before. It is this, you know, found footage type of thing. Um, and it is just pure chaos. I mean, you watch this and you feel like, okay, I don't think Orson Welles had a very high opinion of Hollywood life. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these characters speaking to each other with constant judgment and they're sniping at each other, but they also seem to be speaking in riddles at the same time. Uh, it's very Altman-esque in a lot of ways. Um, and it's just constant action. So many of the shots uh, are one second long and then we just cut to something else. But what I love is that at the core, um, and this is something that you'll find in, in all kinds of Wells films, um, maybe even all of them, that there's often a lot of activity. His, his art direction is usually very ornate, but at the core is it's usually about loneliness. Um, somebody who feels very isolated often in the midst of a group of people, even though even though, and maybe especially if that group of people is specifically there for that person. Um, but they're not actually there for him. Mm -hmm. Um, and you'll see this over and over again, whether it be Falstaff or Kane or Mr. Arcaden or whatever. Um, you have this gargantuan figure that is larger than life and everybody respects him, but nobody really knows him. Um, and those that do know him, might feel a certain degree of pity, uh, but also a little bit of frustration because the, the main character is very flawed. And so you get this intense sadness in a film that is constant activity. Um, and the way that those two things are juxtaposed and the way that 
the actually the more activity you see in the film, the more lonely and despairing you as the viewer feel. And it is just, you know, it's, I, I, I do love Orson Welles and I'd say, I know, I know more about him than a lot of people I know, but I'm not an expert. Uh, some people really are and I am not, but I've always liked the themes that he explores and to be able to see this film, especially one where there is such an Orson Welles figure in there and it just makes you, it, <coughs> it's, is cheesy, but it's, it's like hearing uh, an anecdote from someone that you thought was done talking. Um, mm. and it's, uh, a really marvelous film. And I found myself, it is, it's not a sentimental, sentimental film by any stretch, but I f- still found myself getting kind of emotional as I was watching it. Um, and, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, especially since after my dad died, mostly what I heard was his brothers and sisters finally telling us all the stories he wouldn't have told us <laughs> sure. about him being a little troublemaker and teen- troublemaking teenager. Yeah. Uh, That's fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was great. Um, all right. Um, next up for me, I watched, uh, and you can read my review right now on the website, uh, I watched a 1949 Western called El Paso, directed by Lewis R. Foster and starring John Payne and Gail Russell uh, and Sterling Hayden as the bad guy. Mm. Um, and uh, it takes place immediately after the Civil War in which a, uh, a Confederate officer, the movie makes no distinction about him being a Confederate, like he's just coming back from the war. And the, yeah, like it made me think, like I, I was really thinking about like, and I, I mentioned this in my review as well, but uh, so I often paraphrase <laughs> my own reviews when I'm doing the movie yeah. journal or the opposite will happen. I'll say something in the movie journal and be like, I should put that in my review when I read, when I read yeah, my yeah. review. Anyway. Um, uh, but it, it, it this, in, in, in some ways this seems like exactly the kind of Western that was, that people were revising when they made revisionist Westerns mm. because it's a movie that like almost completely ignores, um, Native Americans, right. um, except for one character who doesn't actually have any lines, and then some reference to Native American like people, like raider, like raiding mm-hmm. stages, like you know, raiding stagecoaches or whatever, you know, <laughs> like uh, bandits or whatever. What um, year was it made? Uh, Forty nine. Forty nine. Right. Um, and, and yeah, the fact that he's a Confederate and the fact that the Confederacy lost, like again. He's not coming back from war like, oh, we lost. He's just like, well, the war's over. Yeah. It's, it has no, um, and I guess being 1949, being post-war America, yeah. um, maybe that was just the only notes that they wanted to hit. But it just seems so strange to me to not uh, specify that he was a Confederate on the losing side of a mm-hmm. war um, in a country, living in the country that beat his side. Yeah. Not a concern. Basically, just he's an officer. The war's over. He goes back home to Charleston. He's a lawyer. He's not ready to go back to practice law yet, so he takes a job. He has to go out to El Paso to find this judge who has moved from Charleston to El Paso mm-hmm. um, to get him to sign some pay. It's a MacGuffin or whatever. He, but basically, he goes out to El Paso, and he is shocked at the lawlessness. El Paso, at this point, is a very young mm-hmm. uh, town, essentially. And Sterling Hayden basically pay, plays a um, greedy and uh ruthless and in 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 a scrupulous um uh land developer who has used loopholes in the law to essentially steal or procure land from the men who are off fighting the war while they're on uh, while they're on, so he can buy up all the stuff and he owns the judge in town he own, he's essentially the mayor but he owns he just owns the town and this this Charleston lawyer is just shocked mm-hmm. at the lawlessness and then um uh basically the question of the movie becomes and becomes it's a compelling question except the movie is the movie's not bad it's just so ham-fisted and so just blaring its themes multiple there's multiple speeches in the movie about law and and uh morals but basically the question of the movie is is this guy going to be able to use the law to fix this town or is he going to succumb and become corrupted even in battling sterling hayden is he going to uh bring himself down to his level and use, mm-hmm. use violence and other sorts of, uh, coercion, uh, and stuff. So it's, um, 
uh, it's interesting. I just wish the movie weren't so broad. Yeah. Um, the thing that's most interesting about it to me in, in terms of, uh, blu-ray and restorations and stuff it's a it's a cinecolor movie which was a two-color color process mm-hmm. um which is a thing because three-color technicolor was invented in the early 30s maybe 1930 i can't remember exactly um so i think of two-color the two-strip color yeah. as being like a 1920s <coughs> thing so for it, it i was and I just looked it up. I guess a lot of Westerns use Cinecolor. Even this is 1949. This is almost 20 years after three strip Technicolor. They're still mm-hmm. using a two color, two color process. But a lot of Westerns used two strip color because I guess it was cheaper than three strip color. And because Westerns don't have a lot of greenery, the fact that the, they yeah. couldn't reproduce green wasn't really <laughs> a big deal. But it's still, if you are accustomed to two strip Color, not technicolor, but just two strip color in general. It's immediately apparent by the mm. the sort of turquoise and orange color palette of the thing. You know, um, does uh, it look good or is uh, it was it distracting? Um, no, it 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 looks good. It's just I, I think it's the kind of thing where if you have spent enough time looking at two strip versus three strip color, it, you can't help but notice how limited the range is and how like every bit of Red, anything that's even a little bit red ends up being sort of roughly the same shade of orange. Mm-hmm. Everything that's a little bit blue ends up being roughly the same shade of teal or turquoise. You know, it's a, it's, uh, I watched on YouTube, like, <laughs> uh, sort of a, I don't know what you'd call it. A tutorial doesn't sound right, but, uh, somebody gave an example of when we think of color, you know, when we think of colorblind, we think somebody that just sees in black and white. When in fact, that's very rarely the case. Right, yeah. It's usually what you're talking about here, which is, different shape like red like we can see all different kinds of red whereas someone might see it as just a single shade of orange mm-hmm. or something like that and it sounds like that just kind of yeah. a frustrating experience actually it, maybe yeah you know i mean you and i went to the same film school um columbia college chicago that's mad at them right now yeah. we'll get into reasons why not that they'll ever find out uh that we're mad no yeah they'll never know that we're no. mad um anyway lord knows we don't uh, talk about them every fucking episode yeah moving on <laughs> moving on um uh but i didn't i didn't learn i don't remember learning about technicolor there because i when i learned this is an argument in favor of what i, I remember steven steven soderbergh saying this like 20 years ago like basically saying no one needs to go to film school anymore there's dvds and blu-rays and special features and you can read you can learn everything you want as a consumer or whatever. Um, I learned about two strip technicolor from the aviator because I remember reading about how hmm. Martin Scorsese intentionally made the color palette for a lot of scenes to strip. Like they made, made the, you know, the, the, the greens more turquoisey. I remember yeah. the one that I remember the most is the, uh, the golfing scene between him and, uh, Kate Blanchett as, yeah. as Catherine Hepburn and the green, the little greens of the golf course aren't quite green. They're almost blue. Huh. Um, and that was an intentional, uh, choice. Part of it was costuming and production design. Part of it was color grading that, mm. that, uh, Martin Scorsese did to recreate that two strip technicolor look that, and that's where I learned what two strip technicolor and how, what, what, what it was and how it was different from three strip. Yeah. I mean, because you and I took the lean and Powell class, we learned a lot about three strip technicolor, Right, right, we learned about because um, Michael Powell uh, used it quite a bit. Uh, yeah, we learned. Um, oh, what is her name? Natalie, um, uh, the woman who was like the official Technicolor. Oh boy, uh, Natalie Kalmus. What a, I can't remember her name now. I don't either. But there was a woman who worked for Technicolor. Who like part of the deal with Technicolor was she had to be on set and approve things. That's right. Um, and Michael Powell would go to great lengths to avoid her and keep her away from his movies so he could use Technicolor. Uh, because I think that the, the Technicolor company wanted you to use Technicolor to make, have everything be colorful. You want like, mm-hmm. no, have these women wearing 18 different colored dresses with like, right. you know, petticoats that are another color and let's like make everything super bright and colorful, colorful and we want Michael to hurt Powell, the audience. Yeah, with color. Michael Powell wanted to use sort of the, the brilliance and contrast, but not yeah. necessarily have, uh, anyway, yeah. Oh, I was I almost every once in a while. I almost tell a story that I realized, wait, no, I can't tell that. It's a work story, oh, but I almost told a really interesting, uh, story that I'll have to tell you off mic. Um, 
Uh, I was recently doing a, a project where I was looking up uh, box office through the years, and uh, The Red Shoes was number one uh, the year it came out, which is actually, Bruce. every once in a while I get surprised by what people came out in droves to see uh, mm-hmm. any given year. Um, a big one for me is uh, 79. Number one at the box office was Kramer versus Kramer. I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, yeah. Well, you and I certainly, we talked about it last week off, yes. off mic, but yes, yeah, I think we've probably mentioned it. And that's one that I keep forgetting. So I try to, rem- I'm trying to make myself remember it now because it's such an odd little fact, the year of alien and apocalypse now. Yeah. But anyway, um, okay. Well, what's next for you? <clears throat> next for me is a rewatch, but it's been a while. Uh, and it is Unchian Andalou. We oh. watched this in class today. Didn't take very long. <laughs> How long is Unchian Andalou? It's like 20 minutes, right? Yeah, uh, we packed a lot into today's class. We watched some Edison stuff, some Lumiere stuff, Trip to the Moon, uh, Great Train Robbery, and nice. Unchian Andalou. So, uh, and try to guess how this uh, I as much as I I tried to warn them ahead of time the kids uh-huh. I said you're gonna see some of the most horrifying imagery specifically in the first couple minutes uh, the first one minute in fact uh, so just uh, prepare yourself for that and um, I specifically did not look at the screen not because I am grossed out by it it is gross I'm, but, I'm grossed, out, grossed but out by it. I don't avert my eyes but I did I looked away in general because I wanted to see if I would get an audible reaction uh-huh. from the from the the class. Uh, I sure did. Uh-huh. Uh, people would be like, "Oh, just that." <laughs> it's like, "All right, now we're talking." Um, but beyond that, uh, obviously, there's the. N- I mean, the eye is the most horrifying thing, but the ants coming out of the hand is oh, rough stuff. Yeah, um, and just. <clears throat> As an exercise in surrealism, it's it's a I mean, there's a reason that it has stayed around and that we keep talking about it because the the beauty of this in in an, in an almost Alice in Wonderland kind of of way the way that you sell another reality essentially and the way to make it more unsettling is to have is that none of the characters think it's weird. There comes a moment right, where a yeah. guy just starts pulling two pianos with dead donkeys in them, and apparently a couple of priests uh, who are just who aren't angry at the ba- about the fact that they're being pulled by rope by a guy in a room. Uh-huh. Oh, and also pianos with dead donkeys in them. Um, they're just kind of like more than anything, they're kind of put off. Uh-huh. Like this is interrupting their day. Yeah. Um, and so it's just <laughs> it's it's imagery like this, and and the idea that there's a woman just standing in the middle of the street and cars are just whizzing by her and she's not getting out of the street, but she's also not suicidal. Mm -hmm. She's just kind of there. And then a car hits her. And only then do people say, Hey, something's going on over there. Um, and it's just, a, it's such a, a brilliant exercise in filmmaking. I mean, I do think that the film has some stuff to say about, um, sexual repression and what is happening inside us versus what we uh, allow people to see. But mm. beyond that, just, you know, today in talking with the class, I was talking a lot about experimentation and that in the early days of film, and you still find it, but in the early days of film, it's worth noting that artists from other fields saw film and said, that's something I can, I can do something with that. So like Melier was a stage magician. He saw film, and said, I can do something with that. Salvador Dali was a painter and looked at film and said, I can do something with that. Um, and invariably, these artists from other fields coming in create these seminal works of, of art, I think because they did not feel constrained, not that there was a lot to constrain them at the time anyway, because it was still being defined mm-hmm. as an art form, but they just, they're not, and they're not interested even really with Let's see what I can, you know, they're not trying to pull anything off. They're just trying to do what they normally do, but in a different medium. And, uh, and it's just such, it's such an effective film. Um, it's often deeply disturbing, often quite funny. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't seen it in quite a while and I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Um, all right. I watched the movie. Then we talked about, 
you know, I, I feel like I've gotten to a point in my life. We, we've, we've talked a lot this, this fall movie season. Now it's the winter, but, um, about biographical documentaries and how, mm-hmm. um, uh, largely over them, uh, with some exceptions. Um, but biopics in general, I, I go in with my guard up, uh, yeah. you, you know, cause I mean, I really <coughs> didn't care for on the basis of sex, say last year right. or RBG too. That's a, yeah, both categories I didn't care for. Um, but I was super excited based on what I, what I'd, what I'd read and just the milieu in which the movie takes place to watch Ethan Hawke's blaze, which is a biopic of blaze Foley, who was, a um, I guess he was from, I think he was from Georgia and maybe, he, no, I think he was from Arkansas. He lived in Georgia anyway, but he mostly, uh, sort of an Austin slash Chicago country musician, um, in the seventies and the 1980s, um, who, was a contemporary of Towns Van Zandt, which is a name that I know uh, much better. I'm much more mm-hmm. familiar with Towns Van Zandt's work. Um, and this is a biopic done absolutely right because it is actually a biopic that is actually, that, that, that actually uh, condemns mythologizing because, mm-hmm. and here's, <laughs> Here's a, 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 a I'm going to say this is a ballsy choice made by Ethan Hawke and by um, screenwriter. Um, well, it's based on a, the memoir of Sybil Rosen, who was Blaze's uh, wife. She's played in the movie by um, Elia Shawkat, who was one of my favorite mm. favorite actresses working. Um, but I'm, I'm going to call this a ballsy choice to uh, make Towns Van Zant kind of the asshole in the movie because anyone who's interested in watching a movie Bart Blaze Foley is probably a Towns Van Zandt fan. Sure. So it's funny uh, to have him play, played by, uh, he's played both Blaze Foley and Towns Van Zandt are played by musicians. Ben Dickey plays Blaze Foley and Charlie Sexton plays Towns Van Zandt. Charlie Sexton has acted before, not in stuff that I've seen, I don't think, but um, uh, it's a really interesting choice in Ethan Hawke part to cast musicians because they can get the playing and singing part right. And then yeah. also get great performances out of them. Charlie Sexton as Tom's Van Zandt is perfect as the kind of, and I'm sure I don't want to name names, but you and I, whenever you've got a little scene, mm-hmm. you know, be it like there's the, you know, film Twitter type scene say, right. or there's the comedy scene that we used to hang out. Wow. Anytime you got a little scene, you've got the person who's like high up in that scene. And even though, in the grand scheme of things, they don't have a lot of power. They wield their power within the scene mm-hmm. and become a sort of little bully, you yeah. know? And that's Towns Van Zandt kind of comes across like that in the movie. It's a ballsy choice, I think, to paint him that way. Um, but uh, Charlie Sexton plays him terrifically. But uh, really, I think, so the movie is definitely about... Um, cause it has a number of framing devices that takes place all over, uh, in terms of chronology. Um, it has a framing device in which a radio DJ played by Ethan Hawke is interviewing Towns Van Zandt about Blaze Foley. But then there's also the main structure of the movie is the last concert that Blaze Foley played, which was recorded. You can listen mm-hmm. to it on Spotify, Spotify and the movie almost breaks down into chapters based on each of the songs he played at that last show. Um, at this tiny Austin bar, um, and, and, and so you, you get, um, on the one hand, you've got, like I said, this sort of deconstruction of the way that people are mythologized, even by the people who knew them. And the idea that it's Sybil Rosen, whom Towns Van Zandt didn't even know hmm. Blaze's wife who probably knew him best, but he, she's not the one out there giving radio interviews right. about his misunderstood tragic genius. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got, um, a movie that I think, and this is the thing I found much more touching is it's about the way that music, I think it's very difficult in a movie to get across the way that music is actually appreciated and enjoys and uh, appreciated and enjoyed the way it informs our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, like you've got things like Bohemian Rhapsody in which you've got people going to concerts and every concert is a rapturous yeah. moment, you know, whereas really the songs that we love, no matter how much we love them, especially when we're talking about popular forms of music, 
they are rarely enjoyed just on their own. They become a part of our lives. Right. You know, there's, um, there's a really cool part. One of my favorite, uh, sequences in the movie is, so it's at that last show that he's playing. He starts playing a song live. And then that leads us as a lot of the things do into the time in his life that he wrote the song. Mostly has to do with him and Sybil. Mm-hmm. And so when we go from that, we essentially, uh, what we see while he starts playing the song, we see the waitress go outside to take a cigarette break. Then we go back to this flashback back in his life. And we transition from the live version of the song. We're hearing Ben Dickey play to the recorded version. And then it cuts back to the waitress smoking outside and she's hearing the music through the wall, except it's no longer the live version. Yeah. It's the recorded version that we were just hearing and it all happens kind of seamlessly. And it's the way that uh, I think it really gets its, it puts its finger on the way that the, the, the songs that we love are just a part of our lives in every form and at all times. And not necessarily just when we're standing at rapt attention at the, the genius on stage. It's very rare. I, more so, I'd say, than any other uh, art form, I would say the, uh, that music is rarely a thing that we, go, that we go to or that we intend to listen to. We might throw on a specific album because we're in the mood for it, but often it's the radio's on or you're... <coughs> yesterday, I was at a coffee shop and uh, they just had a really good mostly like seventies rock, uh-huh. uh, uh, mixtape or, or play playlist or whatever. And every song that came on, I wasn't meaning to, but it was just like, Oh, how exciting. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly my being at this coffee shop working, working on my syllabus, uh, was a much more enjoyable experience. But now working on one of the first syllabi that I've ever made as I transition into this new career. Now that will always kind of be associated with these songs. And so now (laughs) like, so that is to say that now like the songs can actually create meaning in the thing you're doing, but also the thing you're doing can now get fused onto that song. Like, um, the song, uh, yesterday by the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Um, it was playing, it's a great song no matter what. But it was playing in the car when I was six years old uh, as we were on our way to my uncle's funeral. And that's and like it was it's such a sad song. um, And so now I can't hear that song without hearing without thinking of that moment. But also the moment already had plenty of meaning, but it also kind of infused a specific type of tone to that moment as well. Um, This really that. As you know, maybe I should stop saying this because actors have been surprising me pleasantly uh-huh. lately uh, when they direct. But yeah, uh, but yeah I'm not usually uh, I'm usually suspicious, but it sounds like he really kind of gets yeah, it. And this isn't his first time directing um, uh, by any means. This is okay. his, I think, third narrative feature. He also made a documentary mm. uh, about a, a professional pianist, which I saw with Ethan Hawking, the pianist, doing a Q&A after. How are they actually, doing? Uh, stayed for. They were great. Okay. Um, this movie also has a great... Most of the... Uh, outside of Elia Shawkat, most of the main cast are not people you've known, but there's a ton of uh, cameos. Yeah, I was looking uh, at Yeah, it. Wyatt Russell plays... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sybil's acting, acting coach, acting teacher. Um, then you've got very funny the the the, the three rich like people who, like oil tycoon assholes who decide it'll be fun to start a record label and not yeah. hire uh, Blaze are played by Richard Linklater, Steve Zahn, and Sam Rockwell. Yeah. <laughs> um, they only have like two scenes uh, together, but they're like a I guess like three scenes, but they're like a comedy team. The three I'm of sure. them uh, together, it's uh, very funny. The, and speaking of funny, the last thing I want to say, I kept thinking. I know I, I think you're a fan of the band The Drive By Truckers. Uh, uh, it's been a long time, but yes, I do. I do like them. So they have a song. Um, it's on the album Decoration Day. I think it might be called Decoration Day. It's about the premise of the song is that it's a father giving his son advice. His son's going to go off and pursue a career as a musician. Mm-hmm. And he says a number of things, but one of the, he says, 
don't call what you're wearing an outfit. Don't ever, don't ever say your car is broke. And then he says, don't worry about losing your accent. A Southern man tells better jokes. And there are multiple scenes in blaze of just blaze, usually blaze or towns sitting around and telling very long, very colorful jokes that are, they're wonderful. And I wish yeah. if I had the time and if I had that Southern accent, I would tell them, uh, to you now, but I, I don't think I could sell them. You can do a Southern accent, uh, right? Uh, Probably not, probably one that would be seen as insulting. <laughs> oh, yeah, all right. Um, all right, you had some TV shows to talk about? Yeah, uh, but before I do, I will say that uh, we started recording before my Miniflix contact uh, told me what to push. Okay. Uh, and then he has, he has uh, sent it in. So I wanted to uh, let you know that... Uh, so I was talking about like the blog, and they've got like the articles and interviews and stuff. So right now, they have an article talking about the state of the short film Oscar race. The world of short films is one that I'm mostly unfamiliar with. Um, but for people that are super into it, it's like any kind of sub community that is, even if I don't find the thing itself that interesting and not that I don't find short film interesting, but like, even if it's not the thing that I'm most invested in, the fact that people are the fact that there are people that are really paying close attention to the Oscar race in regards to the short film categories, which most people don't really even care about is something that I kind of love. And so anyway, so if you click on the mini flicks ad, uh, you will find uh, an article about this, the current state, uh, of the short film Oscar race. Um, and then I also wanted to mention, uh, very briefly that, uh, I am putting out a new book, uh, in the next couple of months called cinematic suffering reviews of terrible movies. And, the more I have been uh, compiling, I'm getting a bit loftier with it. Yes, the reviews already exist, but I'm also going to be writing yeah. larger things about the nature of negative criti- criticism. New material. Some new material. This is like when a band puts out a greatest hits album, but exactly. then they tack like a new single or two on the end. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, plus, I will be posting a. I know what you mean. No, but I was just reminded there was like um, just this past week. Meg- so Megadeth had been teasing something's coming this January. Right. <laughs> There's something about Megadeth has been teasing. Yeah. And then the thing dropped, dropped. It was just a greatest hits album, which in the age of, age of Spotify, it's yeah, like, that's nothing. You wait, you made me a playlist. That's <laughs> yeah. The, 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 yeah. Th- thanks. I don't know why you needed it. Why did you need three it? weeks of teasing? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, that's only going to compound the disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And then I'm also, I'm going to include an essay that I was always a little bit iffy about, making public not because it's uh it could be seen as caddy uh i wrote it i love that i stuff. know you do uh i wrote it in college i want to see your pauline kale uh, <laughs> unleashed upon the world okay well it's called the vulgarization of modern uh modern film criticism and uh as i was thinking about this book i thought like i'm going to incorporate that as well um <laughs> so yeah um I'm not going through uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter or anything like that. Uh, I'm trying to just pare it down very easily to uh, I'm going through PayPal. You can get it through. If you go to more than there'll be a, a button on the side that says cinematic suffering. Um, and there's just, there's essentially one pre-order point, uh, a dollar point, which is 20 bucks for that. You'll be in the special thanks at the end. You'll get, and you'll get a signed copy of the book, uh, when I actually get them. So, and the pre-orders help pay for the publishing costs. So, uh, I hope to get them, get everything done, um, and have the books by late March, early April. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, that's that's the situation. I really want to. I, I, I really want to put this out, and that will help me do it. So don't uh, don't sit on your hands if you're interested. And at the moment, I can only ship in the United States, but I'm looking into other possibilities. So anyway, okay, just wanted to get that out there. Um, so TV, okay. Jen and I, of course, finished season three of The Amazing Race, right? And so. started season four. Because um, you wanted to wash the taste of Flo winning out of your mouth, right? Listen to this. <laughs> in uh, in episode one, uh, there's a... Of season four? Of season four. There's a uh, a couple that's, that is running. They're not... They're, it's weird. Like They tease each other a lot, but like really sharp edged. So it's just like, ah, this is uncomfortable. Uh Um, but anyway, there's a moment when, uh, 
they have to run. They, they're, they're, I think they're running to the, to the mat. Um, and the, and the, the woman is running a little bit behind and the guy's like, come on flow. Like, <laughs> like, he uses that. Like <laughs> she becomes an, ins- an insult. Uh, but, but what's in it again at this point, I mean, I'm enjoying the show, but at this point, the academic, you know, the academic in me, it's fun to watch the show evolve into what we know it is now. Right. And I mentioned that last season you had a lot of instances of people being hours behind, Mm -hmm. really no chance of catching up or anything like that. But in the last couple of episodes, there's a lot of bunching up and you saw like tension, but you also saw like friendships emerge and that kind of thing. And I think the producers saw that that is effective. And this season, I think we're, I think we're three episodes in and it's all that like they, they realize that yeah, yeah. Airport stuff is not that interesting. Not nearly as much as everybody getting to one place and they need to like, each one needs to like pull off like, Oh, I've got the, the one o'clock slot. I've got the one fifteen slot and stuff like that. Um, so it's just interesting to see that evolve and in some cases how quickly it evolves like they knew something they the minute they saw it work they're like this we need to make this happen more often yeah so um so that's really enjoyable and then uh this this last one it's hard to watch another season of uh career enthusiasm or something oh you you're gonna (laughs) laugh at this okay so i i have um a pretty long commute now okay and uh I took a break from listening to books on tape because the commute is also not hard. It's just like you get on the two ten and head East. That's it. Yeah. So it's like, all right, well I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to watch stuff on YouTube while I'm driving. <laughs> uh, most, but that's the thing is because I'm not really going to be looking at it, mostly just listening. Uh, I don't want it to be anything that I care about. So, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole of Pawn Stars. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Pawn Stars? I've seen the odd episode. Okay. I'm familiar with uh, with Chumley. Yeah, yeah, who is you know what, admittedly, he's kind of adorable. Anyway, uh he's co- I mean totally phony at every it's so phony. So so phony. Like I've seen episodes of uh, what do you call it? Antiques Roadshow, oh, which yeah. is, it's the, kind of the same principle. Which is here's this old thing, and then someone explains what it is, and then what it's worth. That's the stuff I'm interested in. When it comes to Pawn Stars, I don't the little like fake fights There's they the, get into, or Chumley like Chumley set a medieval mace on the glass case and it broke through. That was a real thing that happened in one episode. All <laughs> right, he well, just like brought in this mace and he was like, "Here, I got this mace," <laughs> and like, right through That's the glass least, counter. That seems like it could be feasible uh, because something actually got you know damaged. Right, Chumley, as opposed, like, Chumley is like, not we're a prof- gonna, professional actor, so it's very obvious. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. And just the the thing that gets me, it's this weird. Yeah, oh, I, the the items are always what's most interesting, especially when it's discovered that it's actually a phony or it's this yeah. thing that you can that you cannot find anywhere right and the person actually has the real thing that's interesting yeah but then you get like the person is like realizes what it's worth and is like why well, six thousand yeah. dollars and rick's like i could do 400 yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's always like way low oh, and watching it on youtube <laughs> like uh people make that joke all the time <laughs> where it's just like it goes uh well the guy said it's worth sixty thousand i mean i can go like 50,000 and, and then in the comment they say, Rick's like, I could give you a kiss, but I'm taking all the risk. (laughs) Um, and so anyway, uh, but what gets me is that you get this weird combination of things with pawn stars, because on one hand you get the phoniness of the little bets they make with each other and all that. And just even, even in their like confessionals, they're constantly framing what they need to do, but in a way that's really unnatural. Like even Rick, uh, the, uh, he, uh, he's kind of the main character for lack of a better term. And so he goes, he goes, I don't know anything about baseball cards. So I brought someone in to check it out. It's like, (laughs) why are you talking like that? It's like, I can see in the, in the description, this season six. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, How can you not make that more natural for God's sake? Yeah. So there's, so on one hand, there's no, cause I watched chopped a lot. Okay. 
And see, I, I know enough about like reality competition shows to know that like when the producers ask them a question, they're saying, state it back to me in the form of a statement, yes, yeah. which is why you get, they're clearly saying like, cause you know, the premise of chop, they don't know what the ingredients mm-hmm. are until the last minute. So when they're like, clearly what the question was is what did you think when you saw the sardines? Or when you looked at the sardines, mm. because every contestant is like, I looked at the sardines. <laughs> and so, like, so everyone's like, every contestant I chopped is constantly like, I looked at this and I thought this, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Use it's, a little bit more. I know. Imagination. Uh, so what's interesting is that on one hand you get that, which is like, you know, fake as can be not fake, but just, it's so produced. But then there's the fact that like this pawn shop has been in existence for a long time. These guys did do this as a job before the show came along and you just see, you can see who Rick, who he seems like a, mostly a pretty genial guy, but when he's doing the confessionals, you see the, the falseness. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Whereas when he's, when he's like negotiating with someone, even if that is not, uh, even if that is, is not real or natural yeah his his natural like salesman spiel comes in and man he just seems like a scumbag (laughs) (laughs) whether it be he does a thing that's after a while you realize what it is he's doing that okay so uh give the answer okay so let's say you're trying to sell me this microphone Uh and i'll be rick and i'll say how much you want for it uh I i feel like i could live with 85 bucks all right, but how much do you really want for it? <laughs> and then he laughs. Uh-huh. He goes, <laughs> like, he's letting you know, like, hey, I'm making a joke, but seriously, I'm not giving you what you want. Right. And he's got that, no offense to anybody, he's got that smoker's laugh that just really <laughs> seems like like this guy, if the cameras weren't on, yeah. he would be trying to steal something from these people. <laughs> uh, so it's... The history part, I mean, it's on the History Channel, and I like that, for yeah. the most part, they don't skimp on that, especially when they bring in, like, actual experts who yeah, can like explain that. this stuff. I like that, but the show is... I love Survivor. We love Amazing Race. Uh, and there is... When you're a movie person and you talk about reality TV to other movie people, they tend to roll their eyes. Uh, and while I'll defend Survivor all day long and will defend Amazing Race, you look at Pawn Stars and you're like, okay, I yeah, get it. that's what people are thinking. 